You have more than a thousand people to feed and nothing but local veg and protein. What do you do? You throw a big party. From SDPB Radio, it's Friday, September 15th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, the first Fruits Harvest Festival. We'll visit an urban neighborhood in Sioux Falls and celebrate hidden abundance. A cohort of Australians visits tribal lands in South Dakota. We'll learn about a Rotary Group study exchange. Then a boy, an internal enemy, and a long, long walk for a strawberry shake. Kevin Wooster is with us. He'll bring memories of overcoming injury and invisible obstacles. Plus, chamber music with pizzazz. We release all stuffiness with the white spruce chamber players. That's later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB Studios in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The Ness School of Management and Economics is the business hub at South Dakota State University. At the end of the month, that school will open an outpost in Sioux Falls to expand its reach and impact. Dr. Joe Santos is a familiar voice to our listeners, and he's coming to today's show outside of his usual Monday macro segment. He is director of the Nest School and is joining on us on this lovely Friday to talk about what's coming to Startup Sioux Falls. And he is with us from the Janine Basinger Studio at South Dakota State University. Hey, Joe, welcome back. Thank you, Lori. This is so fun. <laughs> You're coming just a couple blocks from where I'm sitting right now to yep. start up Sioux Falls. Give me an idea of this partnership. How long has it been in the works? Sure. So the whole point of it is to get closer to your studio. <laughs> That's um, it, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, so this is something we are referring to affectionately as uh, Nest School Downtown. It's, it's an outpost, as it were. And it's, of course, with Startup Sioux Falls, which is its own very important thing uh, all on its own. But we have uh, worked with Startup um, to set up a, a, an arrangement. Um, and the objective of this, by the way, is this is an, it's an outpost, really, as I like to say, to share knowledge with and afford opportunity to uh, that broad and growing Sioux Falls metro area audience. And what we're thinking about here is really nothing new for the Nest School. So this is community outreach programming. It's very much in the tradition of SDSU extension. And for those audience members out there who know S, uh, Nest School well, we have a Nest School extension, uh, forgive me, an SDSU extension piece in the Nest School. So many of my colleagues have appointments in SDSU extension, and we have field specialists and so on. And okay. so this is really using that uh, machinery, if you will, to bring uh, community programming uh, down to the Sioux Falls metro area. So the arrangement is one where we're going to have um, a little office space there, and we're going to have someone uh, appointed or um, uh, we're going to uh, identify through SDSU extension uh, to, to sort of be there uh, downtown. And then we also got that really cool market beat theater that, again, is Startup Sioux Falls. But we've got, if you will, dibs on that theater space that we will use as our sort of community outreach instrument. So that's where we will be able to put on uh, some kind of general audience programming. Um, and we've got one coming up on September 29th uh, at 12.30 p.m., if I may. We're going to have a little ribbon cutting. That'll be the first event there at 1 p.m. Um, and that's something we're going to call West Side Story. Um, and it's uh, 
really talking about um, entrepreneurship, uh, new venture creation, innovation, uh, and the risks associated with that. And I've got some colleagues of mine uh, who are leading that effort. Uh, Brittany Kierstad McKnight, who is an assistant professor of business law, and Craig Silvernagel, who is an associate professor of entrepreneurial studies, um, and someone who is an entrepreneur, West River, uh, Dylan Kierstad, and that's where the West Side Story play comes in the title. <laughs> All right. How, how long do you want to um, divert down the path of whether this is downtown or uptown? Well, I'm not going to touch that. Uh, <laughs> it's downtown sixth, for us. <laughs> sixth, sixth in Minnesota, I think if you're north of that, you're uptown. We'll, uh, well, we'll, re we'll revisit that and uh, <laughs> fact check the actual location of this building. Um, tell me a little bit, Joe, about you know, bringing area professionals together on an ongoing basis. What, what are the opportunities there for having this hub? Yeah, I, I really do think this is sort of the sort of greater good uh, that we see that we're serving. And again, I keep bringing this back to the model uh, where we learn the lessons, and that is our extension outreach yeah. uh, work. And so it's really just an attempt. Uh, I work very closely with our SDSU Extension Director, Carla Troutman, who incidentally is inextricably linked to this effort, work on thinking about ways of kind of facilitating what we think of loosely as urban extension. Um, I've always been fascinated by extension a little bit, maybe your listeners don't know about, but I'm a kid from Newark, New Jersey. Um, and public institutions and outreach broadly defined uh, sort of, you know, saved my life. Um, and I would have not known about higher education and the opportunities it afforded were it not for outreach efforts of the sort that I have in mind down there and my colleagues have in mind down there. So this really is greater good outreach. So as I said, there's the West Side Story bit on the 29th where we're thinking about innovation and entrepreneurship and startups. Um, there's a little something you and I have planned on October 30th, an evening with Monday Macro, um, thinking about, again, the larger macro economy. But really, it's it's an attempt to uh, open a door for folks who may think that door is locked. Um, I was one of those kids. Um, so it's it's a way to find higher education generally. If it's the Nest School, great, but more importantly, just to find that path to higher education and the sort of concepts and issues and challenges and opportunities that we think about in higher ed. We just want to sort of share that. Um, we're all now addicted to it. Uh, we want to share <laughs> share that with everyone else because it was life-changing for us and it'll maybe be life-changing for other folks as well. Yeah. Well, we're going to have a segment here in a little bit with folks from the Whittier neighborhood, which is just east of the downtown uptown area within walking distance. It'll be interesting to see how some of those students might intersect or interact with um, the Nest School um, outpost. Joe Santos, mm -hmm. I hope you'll be coming to talk to us about it. But that uh, ribbon cutting, September 29th, I won't be able to talk to you before then. But you said 12.30 and then 1. What time is the actual uh, That's right. ribbon so cutting? Yeah. Yep, 12.30 is the ribbon okay. cutting. And then at 1 p.m. on September 29th, we'll have our program, uh, West Side Story. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us from SDPB's Janine Basinger Studio at South Dakota State University. We've just got everything connected, don't we? Thank you. We sure do. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A group study exchange in South Dakota is asking an interesting question. 
What can we learn from our neighbours who live on the opposite side of the world? The Australia-USA Wiradjuri Ochechi Shakoin Rotary Group Study Exchange is happening now through the end of the month. This group of Indigenous Australian professionals is touring seven Native American reservations in our state. They're led and hosted by members of the Rapid City Rushmore Rotary. Linda Peterson is a Rotarian and joins me now from SDPB's Black Hill Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Linda, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. This is a, a busy schedule. Tell me a little bit about the a general overview of the program first, and then we'll get into some of the details. Well, the overview is that they've come into Rapid City about a week ago, uh, over the weekend actually, and they are now touring. Uh, they'll spend about a week touring the seven uh, reservations, and they will be home hosted by Rotarians in those communities. Some of them are smaller communities, such as Winter, Wagner, uh, Vermilion, and then they go to Sioux Falls, Brookings, Pier, uh, Mitchell in between there, and they'll be home hosted. This is how we um, can fund the uh, exchange. Sure. What, what are you hoping to achieve? What are some of the, the big picture goals? Well, the goals are that they would experience, uh, this is a group of Aboriginal. They were from Wiradjuri, uh, a relatively large uh, tribe in southwest Australia. And they want to experience uh, what's going on in, in our Lakota culture and share experiences, uh, connections. They're really making a lot of connections along the way. It's been amazing. Mm. Um, and also to, to build, uh, uh, Rotary likes to build understanding, uh, peace, vocational excellence. So as they exchange uh, best practices with their uh, partner uh, professionals here, and they will um, learn and take it back there. Then, next year, we do the same with a Lakota group of young professionals. We'll go there and learn from them. Let's talk a little bit about that because you said the Wajiri are an Aboriginal tribe in southwest Australia. So when our um, cohort goes there, what are we hoping will happen next? Are those relationships still you know, between now and then, are those relationships building even further or forming even deeper relationships? It looks like it. Uh, from what I've seen, and I've, I've been with them for only a couple of days, Tom Cadis and Ina Winter are with them every day now. They're driving a van across the state <laughs> with them and experiencing all of these connections along with them. And I'm sure they'll have more to report by the end of this tour. Uh, but then, uh, in between this, after this one week, the team members will each be individually assigned. Uh, and if you'd like, I could go into a brief description of where they will be going. Sure, go ahead. Uh, Lynette, our team leader, is in alcohol uh, uh, prevention and care, and she's going to be positioned in Rapid City, the care center, the detox, the 24-7 program, and will be home hosted. Eddie will go to the Cheyenne River Youth Project in, in Eagle Butte and then also spend a few days in Lemon with John Lopez, the uh, artist, and be traveled back and forth with um, people from the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Tanil will spend some time at Maggie's house in Kyle, and she's into women's business. And what that means is women's studies. They separate women's studies with men's studies or, or business in Australia, and she wants to learn how 
the Pine Ridge uh, women operate here. MICA will go to CASA and the Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board here and the Owati Hospital as he is a um, professional that um, directs a private hospital in Australia. Mm -hmm. And then Ethan, the last one, this is amazing. He, he got positioned, he's got a new position in Australia, so as we change gears, change horses in midstream <laughs> two weeks before they got here, uh, he will go to the Badlands National Park, be hosted by a Wagner Rotarian there who, who works at Badlands, and then the uh, companion um, National Park with uh, the um, Pine Ridge uh, Park Rangers. So he's going to have an amazing time. Right. What, what's in it for the Rotarians? Tell me a little bit about how the, the program itself is helping you as a Rotarian and some others expand your knowledge base. Well, really to build relationships between our small communities that live close to the reservations, build understanding amongst our entire population here, um, just that peace and goodwill that we like to uh, say is what one of Rotary's ideals. Yeah. How do you balance the um, the really positive things? And I'm looking at this itinerary. There are so many, you know, success stories and and wonderful, iconic things that the, these people are visiting, and yet there are also, uh, you know, deep problems and conflicts and and things that would be really good for them to understand some of the solutions that people are bringing to some of our more difficult problems. How does that? weave into the plan, or do you anticipate those sorts of things happening spontaneously? Well, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what they're learning. Uh, we are not covering up. We are letting them hear and see exactly what is going on in uh, our Native communities, our local Lakota communities. Um, they are learning that they are so similar. The similarities are very amazing. Uh, they've even said that our Lakota connections with um, social services that are a little bit better than their indigenous. They have a lot to learn. However, they're moving much faster um, with their government uh, entities. They have a program uh, that they're having an election uh, coming up uh, that is the voice for yes, to have a voice in their government. So they don't have the ownership of reservations there. They have reserves that they can live on but they don't have a voice in their government. So there's a lot to learn between the two cultures. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about um, what happens next. As you, as you move through the itinerary, are there times for reflection or follow-ups that are planned to say, how did this work? How can it be replicated in the future? Is it scalable? Is it portable? What sorts of things are you doing to sort of plan for the future of this program? It, it, it's a... Uh, well, a one-off, basically, between our our uh, Rotary District and their Rotary District. But we've had group study exchanges with a lot of cultures. We've had Brazil, uh, Europe, um, a variety. And what happens afterwards is those, those connections stay put, uh, personal connections. I yeah. still have on my Facebook people that I've met over the last 10 years with Rotary. So... We expect that as they uh, advance in their professional careers, they're going to work back and forth. Barry Tice here at the Care Center was deeply interested in how Lynette treats the uh, alcoholism and on their part of the world. 
So I think there will stay the connections between them personally. Linda Peterson, uh, Rotarian, joining us from our SDPB Rapid City space. Thank you so much for the update on this uh, group study program. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Laura. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, how do you feed 1,300 people on a meal of fresh local produce and protein? We'll ask the planners of the second annual First Fruits and Harvest Festival. Jordan Deffenbaugh returns to the studio here. He's in the Kirby Family Studio with me in Sioux Falls. He is community liaison from the Community Revitalization Collective, and he is spearheading the First Fruits Harvest Festival. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So this is a, I hope it's a series. This is the second time you've been in, mm-hmm. in the studio. And I think it's useful because we're talking largely about this neighborhood that we know as the Whittier neighborhood mm-hmm. in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Now, our listeners are across the state of oh, yeah. South Dakota. So why do they care, right? This is, I'm going to tell why I think they, sh- they care. Yeah. <laughs> and then you expand on that. This is the neighborhood I grew up on. And I think it has so much in common with a rural neighborhood, only it's urban. Does mm-hmm. that make sense to you? Absolutely. And Add to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, Whittier, if you were to take it out of Sioux Falls and just set it in the middle of South Dakota, it'd be the 20th largest city in South Dakota or town. It's yeah. about oh, 2,800 people. Uh, there's all sorts of businesses, seven churches, two schools. I mean, it, it is a small town. And so when you think about it like that, you can learn from the neighborhood and learn what works in terms of revitalization, and that can be brought to small towns across the state. And in fact, that's why the South Dakota Community Foundation gave us $100,000 was to research this, to study how do we revitalize small town South Dakota. Yeah, because it is a community with problems. Uh, Yes, it is. And it is a community with great vibrance and Mm -hmm. joy. I think the assets outweigh the problems. I do, too. That's my opinion, and I'm from there. Yeah, and I think that's the way we have to look at it. I think it's really easy to fall into a space of negativity when things aren't going well, when things are breaking down. But how you get out of that spell and spiral upward is finding the strengths, finding the things that are the assets, what's working. And that's what we like to really emphasize. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about first fruits and this idea of local veg, local protein, and Mm -hmm. we're going to feed a whole bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Where did this idea begin? Well, this came about last year. Um, We were doing these forums on 8th Street and learning about, we wanted to figure out the future of 8th Street and what we're going to do with it. And then we decided, oh, let's do a a block party. We started with a block party. We had a big barbecue. It was great. And that went so well, uh, I approached Eric Weber that day of the block party. I was like, we need to do a harvest festival. And he's like, yep. And a few months later, this crazy scheme of sourcing <laughs> nothing but local protein, and we butchered chickens, we sliced 500 pounds of veg, and we just got tons of people to show up, and we closed down 8th Street, and we had a long table dinner, and it was so nourishing. Like, not just because of the food was so good, but because people came together. And this is, I never saw a more diverse group of people in Sioux Falls, South Dakota than that day. And so I think it was just a way to give back and get people sitting down together, whether they have a house or not, no matter what the color of their skin, their creed, 
any of that. It's about we are people living in this place. How do we commune together? Yeah. How do you think about that place and land? Because like you said, there's all kinds of languages here. People are bringing cultural traditions from all over the planet. Mm -hmm. It's indigenous land, and there are Mm -hmm. many Native Americans who live here and say Mm -hmm. this is how... Um, this is what's gone wrong with our environment in this mm-hmm. industrial part of the city. And yet you're here you are at a long table eating local produce. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big statement, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a big statement. A lot of it is. I mean, and it's like it's real. Like, I can talk to you about it. I can show you pictures. i'm i'm ta- I'm speaking right in this microphone right now, explaining mm-hmm. it until you are there. Any of you listening to this right now, until you come to this event, it's next Saturday, September 23rd, at 5 o'clock is the dinner. It is an experience. And, and I believe in this word, there's a lot of talk about mental health in our community, a lot of talk about food security, all the things. I look at this as a start. This is a way to start a conversation. It's a way to break bread together. And I think it's a way for us to heal. I mean, this is something that we've been doing. Part of the reason it's called first fruits is it's a biblical term. It's to bring your best fruits from the harvest. We've been doing this for thousands of years as a, as, as a species. So we need to get back to our roots. And, and I think that this is something that is true in all cultures around the world. And I see Sioux Falls needing to like reconnect with something, something that's true, something that is embedded in our DNA. Why do you care? What do you bring to this neighborhood from your background? Um, one, I'm crazy. Uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, welcome, welcome uh, to the neighborhood. <laughs> welcome to the neighborhood. Um, no, I think you know, I come from a theater background. I, I ran a children's theater for a number of years, and I and I and I saw through the power of community and putting on the show this this great process. And I look at every I look at the first fruits harvest festival. It's a play for me. It's a, it's a stage. There's there are there are actors, there are set designers, there are all these people coming together to create this story, to show this how we could be living, and and I look at it like. Let's bring back the village. Let's bring, I want to live in a village. That's my, that's my selfish understanding of this. I want to live in a place that has, I know my neighbors. I can walk down to the corner store. We have gatherings. We work together. We barn raise together. I don't want to be in this disconnected suburban dystopia anymore. And I think that's true for a lot of people now. And, and you know, folks aren't doing well right now. I'm going to tell you straight up, that's not, no marketing, no bull, folks aren't doing well. And I think this is across our state, across our country, and I think it's because we've lost the things that we really, that really define us as human. And I see this event as reconnecting with our humanity. And my hope is, is that this is not only the last Harvest Festival for Sioux Falls, uh, I hope that this is the first of many harvest festivals that happen all across the city. Like ev- I believe every neighborhood should have a harvest festival. Every neighborhood should have events that bind them together and build community. Yeah, not every this for you know, uh, not everybody has enough food. 
Nope. It's expensive. Yep. Right now to live. Yes, it is. This area isn't a food desert, though. Or it's is it not. The, here's the thing on the food yeah. desert conversation. It's a little more complex than just how far you are from a right. from a grocery store. It's a lot to do too with the knowledge of how to make good food. We're actually working at UGM right now on a preservation kitchen and UGM. Uh, Union Gospel Mission. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, but on, Union Gospel Mission has been a big part of this process, and we're developing a preservation kitchen, a place to learn how to preserve the food, how to how to cook a squash, how to make a tomato sauce, mm-hmm. all these different things, and then. The idea is that that's a space to preserve skills that we have lost. There's so few people that know how to small dice an onion. And I can tell you, if folks learned some of these basic things, we would have so much, so many more resources available to people, and they would have access to the food they need. So just last night, I was leading a conversation on The Seed Keeper, which is the South Dakota Humanities Council one book last night, and I don't have my notes in front of me, so I can't quote Diane Wilson directly. Mm -hmm. But to paraphrase, this is a book about um, Dakota people who, um, during after the the 1862, do I have my decade off? Uh, Sorry about the date. I don't have my notes in front of me. The walk, the long 1700, you know, women, children, non-combatants are going to walk to Fort Snelling to an internment camp, and the women sow seeds into the hems of their skirts to preserve them for the future Mm. and so that they can grow things for their community. They have no idea what's going to happen to them next. And a lot of Diane Wilson's work in seed keeping doesn't end with what you grow. It is exactly what you just said. Not only do you have to have the knowledge and the actual seed, the genetically preserved seed, but then you have to know what to do with it you have to be able so and she's for for her food sovereignty is all of that and if you're missing a piece you're missing food sovereignty it's a complex in, in Native system. american cultures we're talking about but that yeah. is the work that she is doing yeah as well so what you're saying you know if you can't grow the chickens in your neighborhood and then if you don't know how to to use the protein if you don't know what to do with the eggs or how to store them mm-hmm. um, you're not there yet and a lot of people don't know what to do no. Unless you go to the store and, and, and buy it. And if you don't have the money to do that, yeah, this is a complex web that we have, that you're trying to rebuild. Absolutely. A deeply complex web. And here's the thing, too, is like, I think in uh, past leaders, I think, have looked at this system as a complicated system, not a complex system. Mm-hmm. And the difference is a complicated system is like a machine. You can like switch out the catalytic converter or fix a nut and bolt and then get it running. Or it might just like kind of like hobble along a little bit, but you can define kind of where it's broken. A complex system, it is interwoven. It is, it's like trying to pull a spaghetti noodle out of the spaghetti and not pulling all of them at once. (laughs) And so you can't, when I hear conversations about like housing, when I, like affordable housing, right? right? right, right. Hot button issue. You can't talk about affordable housing without talking about affordable public transit. If you don't have a a reoccurring transit, 15 minutes on the, like it it has to be reliable. If you don't have that, you don't have affordable housing. I'm just sorry, it's just not how it works. And I think that goes for the same about affordable food. 
and access to food. And if you don't have transit, you don't have mental health care if you can't get there. Exactly. The tra- and if you don't have child care so someone can watch your child while you access exactly. <laughs> you know, a, a, a annual checkup or mm-hmm. a mammogram, you don't have you don't have health care. You don't. And, and I think, too, is like what what this event illustrates is like I have to figure out how to connect the dots and find this produce. I'm like even thinking in my head right now. I'm like, oh, I gotta call my chicken guy. I gotta call him. I gotta figure out. I got sixty chickens that I gotta figure out. And it's like it's all these things that you have to do. And it's like, but what that does for me as a learner, as someone who's trying to learn about this system, it puts me in the thick of it. It helps me understand how the system actually works. I want to go over some of the details of this mm-hmm. September 23rd First Fruits Festivals. The second one, 5 p.m. is the meal, parking lot of the Wesleyan United Methodist Church there in the Whittier neighborhood. There's a Habitat for Humanity, Rock the Block. Tell me uh, just in uh, like a minute left, yep. what else is happening that, that weekend? Day. That yeah. day. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That day, Habitat for Humanity is uh, one of our partners is deploying their Rock the Block program. They're going to fix up... Uh, I think 15 different properties across the neighborhood. We got about 100 volunteers coming out for that, two sessions. We are still accepting volunteers. I believe today is the last day. So they can look up Rock the Block Habitat. I, I think I might even have the information there. We're going to put some links up on our yeah. website at sdpb.org slash news. There's also opportunities to volunteer with mm-hmm. the Big Fees, to donate some fresh produce through the Union Gospel Mission, and to run a booth for your nonprofit organization. All that will be on our website. Um, Jordan Deffenbaugh, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate yeah. uh, seeing you again. See you next time. Yeah, see you. <laughs> Let's take a moment now for the reverberations of an elk's call. If you are meandering through Wind Cave National Park around this time of year, you might hear something haunting, eerie, and even ethereal. Right now is peak elk bugling season at Wind Cave. Well, last year around this time, I spoke with Katie Hunhoff about her experience Hunting for the Elk's Call. Katie is the publisher of South Dakota Magazine. She wrote a beautiful piece called Elk Magic about the animal and its bugle. Here is a snippet of our conversation from September 2022. For many of us, nature feels so far removed from our daily lives. And so, yeah, taking a pause and going out to the hills to listen to it just gives people that connection with nature that I think everybody craves. What is sundown like in Wind Cave National Park? Tell us a little bit. You write about it so beautifully. Yeah, Yeah. it was really beautiful and, you know, completely worth the drive out there. I think just the time of year when the elk bugle, the elk's bugle at night, if you get out there early enough, the elk's bugle from sundown to sunup, that we went out just a little bit early so we could see the sunset. And it was just beautiful. And there was coyotes running around. And just that experience itself, like, kind of was like an escape. And and I think that's, like, a big part of it. Even if you don't see elk, if you don't hear elk, right. just going out there for the action of it and for a reason to go out is a big part of it. Yeah, reason to go out and sit still for a while. Mm-hmm. You, As any good journalist does, you found wonderful South Dakotans to sort of guide you on this journey. Tell me a little bit about who you met. 
so I'm not an outdoors person myself, and I have never gone out to listen to Elk Bugle before. But a longtime reader of South Dakota Magazine, Dan Tribby, who's also the manager at Prairie Edge in Rapid City, he encouraged us to do this story. And since it was new to me, um, I wanted to experience it. And so he is extremely passionate about elk, and he has been since high school. And then we also interviewed Chad Lehman, who's the senior wildlife biologist at Custer State Park, and he also was a wealth of knowledge. You know, he's hunted elk around the Midwest for 22 years. With him, when I interviewed him, I really wanted to explore what I had begun to see as a trend was that people were crazy about elk when I talked to them about it. Um, I don't know how to explain it except possibly like a fan of a big football, of a football team maybe, but like an extremely crazy fan. (laughs) They love elk. And Chad was really great. He said it's addictive, and he couldn't explain it to me exactly. He said it's like going on a roller coaster. You can't explain it until you do it. You can maybe look up the bugling song on YouTube, but you really just have to go out in person. The elk's bugling season runs from August to October, but the best window of opportunity to hear the bugle, September 20th to the 30th at Wind Cave National Park. We have a link to Katie Hunhoff's Elk Magic article from South Dakota Magazine that's up on our website, sdpb.org news. More in the moment is coming up after the break. We'll talk with Kevin Wooster about a kid, a monstrous thing, and a strawberry milkshake worth walking for. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, Kevin Wooster is the author of a weekly column for SDPB. It's called On the Other Hand, and it usually includes Kevin's thoughts and musings on all things South Dakota. Well, this week he says he strayed into self-help territory, but I think it is a worthy diversion indeed, and he is with me now on the phone to talk about the latest. Kevin, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, Lori, how are you doing? I'm doing well. You said this is the closest you'll yeah. ever get to writing a self-help book. I don't know. I think so. <laughs> you should write more. <laughs> if that's what you call self-help, this is a, a fantastic um, a fantastic read, and it takes us all the way back to when you were a teenager and had this medical mystery and a mental health crisis that really wasn't defined as a mental health crisis at the time. Is this something a story that you tell often? Because I have not heard this before. I don't. I don't think I talk about the uh, the time I sort of uh, locked myself into the house and yard for months. Uh, I, I spoke obviously some of my friends that I've got, I've got some lifelong friends, uh, a couple in particular that have known me since those days, and and they're aware of it. Obviously, that's not the only, I guess, a strange period yeah. <laughs> of my life or challenged, uh, emotionally challenged period of my life, but that was an interesting one, and uh, and it was, you know, it was kind of, I was kind of uh, searching around, we were all searching around, because back in those days, you know, I, uh, the, the uh, early 60s, basically, early to mid-60s, uh, but there wasn't much for help um, in, a, in, a, in a psychological way, yeah. and certainly not at a t- town like Chamberlain, so you were kind of on your own trying to figure things out. Yeah, and you'd been hit in the head. You had run, you had gone, you were running, you were playing, and you fell. So you had a concussion, 
And then you have this sort of mysterious, like, broken arm story. Tell us a little bit about um, those two events. Well, you know, one, as I say, one arm was uh, one break. I had three breaks in a few period of a few years. One was pretty typical, fall out of a tree, break the forearm. And the other two were not so typical. One was throwing a rock at a duck and, and uh, out at our farm, broke my arm, threw my my arm out of my shoulder out of socket. And nobody, my my brother Terry, who was with me when I broke it, and snorted when I told him I broke my arm. Uh, and my sister Jeannie, who was home for the summer between nursing uh, school uh, semesters, also explained to me that that's the humerus, a huge bone. You couldn't break that throwing a rock. And the doctor said the same thing until he, he set my shoulder, and that uh, didn't fix it. So he x-rayed it, and it was broken. And and so that there was a period of recovery there, and it was a strange thing, but it wasn't until a few years later when I did it again. They were puzzled. How could you do that? But, you know, one of those things that happens. I did it again playing baseball and, and broke it worse this time, throwing. This time it damaged uh, the nerve that goes down and, and makes the hand function, the fingers function. So I had a wrist drop for months and went through the therapy, then kind of shock therapy on the arm and the hand to try and stimulate the nerves and got back mostly used to it. It's still not fully functional. I still can't raise my, my fingers all the way up and back like I can on my left hand, but good enough to type, as they say. And Doctors kind of said, well, maybe it's a weak spot. Maybe we could drill that weak spot out. Maybe we could put bone chips in it. Maybe we could drive a rod down your bone and hook it up. And all of that seemed like something we didn't want to do at that point. So yeah. I just had to be really careful from then on and not throw very much or throw in a certain way. And all of that together, that injury and all kinds of other stuff, led to a lot of missed school and a lot of challenge school with arm casts and fingers covered and you know trying to write left-handed and all that kind of stuff so yeah this is all before your dad dies this begins the story yeah. begins before yeah. that yeah he's part of this conversation yeah. how did your dad respond to the anxiety that you were feeling even though we didn't call it anxiety then but just your your you know problems at school and not wanting to leave the house what was your dad's response well it drove my mom and dad crazy, of course, to, to use a phrase, and, and they didn't know what to do. I went to a psychiatrist in Sioux Falls. He thought it was a bully at school. I told him it wasn't. He said he was sure it must be something <laughs> like that. And finally, I kind of said, okay, whatever. And uh, But we didn't know. They didn't know. And uh, so I ended up with these, what I later determined to be panic attacks. All this kind of developed in, and uh, agoraphobia, you know, that of kind of fear of leaving a comfortable environment, probably looking back on it, it's what it was, and locked me, kind of locked me down in my yard, house in the yard for months during the time my dad was still alive. Now, I write about this strawberry shake escape, sort of, yeah, uh, which was a couple of years before my dad died. All right, let's talk about the power of a strawberry shake. And I, yeah. I hope that kids these days don't have to go through what you went through to just figure out on their own how to navigate this. But you did figure out on your own in some ways how to navigate this, and there was a strawberry shake reward at the end of the walk. Yeah. Tell me about that. I never that. wanted yeah. to leave the yard. Yeah. You know, I just, I, all these these physical effects would come on when I left the yard, and I and I left the house. And so I started to walk, as I say in the story, to try and walk around the block, and did, and walked around a couple of blocks. And this took a period of days and weeks. 
and finally thought I could walk downtown to the highway in Chamberlain to the Bridget Drive-In, and if I made it, I would get a strawberry shake as a reward. And uh, I did. And this is kind of talking about how then, for a period of time, I would do that fairly regularly, walk down for a shake, and then I'd go over to the bridge, look at the river, and and start to work my way back into my life again. And uh, that was the process I used to, as I say in the column, to get back into the world. Yeah. I'm going to read a little bit of your words here where you say, a good family helps a great deal, good friends help, good poetry helps, wild places and wild things help, faith and prayer and a supportive church community help, exercise helps, good therapy helps, and my journalism helps too. Um, well, it helps all of us. I think you helped a lot of people today by sharing this story. I'm going to send people online to read the full piece at sdpb.org slash Wooster. It's up right now. Kevin Wooster, thank you so much for for this. You are loved. I love you. I'll just say it. I love you. Thanks. Great. Thank you. <laughs> love, love you right back. We'll see you next time. All right. White spruce chamber players are on a mission to prove that chamber music is nothing like a rigid reputation. This is a musical group that originally came together for a one-time performance, but the camaraderie they felt was just too much to part with. Since then, the musicians have brought professional, yet easy to listen to chamber music to many South Dakota stages, and they will do that again on Sunday. Brett Cooper is a pianist with the White Spruce Chamber Players, and he is with me now in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio. Welcome. It's nice to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lord. Great to be here. Appreciate your time. Help people understand what the definition of chamber music is. This is a smaller group of people. There's not a conductor up front. What's chamber music? Correct, yeah. I was thinking about this on the drive over. Um, chamber music, if you think about a person's chambers, I guess is kind of a fancy word for living room. So I guess I was kind of thinking that we're sort of the uh, iteration of a garage band that speaks the most to us. So, um, you know, when we try to think about, you had such a nice entry, you said, you know, the rigid reputation, they might think it's kind of stuffy or something like that. But we kind of think of it as, think of it as more like small, good time gathering in a person's home. Yeah. Which is where the music originated. That's why it's a small number of people, because it would fit in someone's living room. Yeah. And so this group of musicians got together, and then you were done. You literally just said, let's do it again. Tell me how you started with White Spruce. Yeah, we love telling this origin story. So mm -hmm. um, I better have Laura, who would I, I would prefer to have on the radio, but she's teaching middle schoolers at Patrick Henry right now. So <laughs> go Panthers. Um, she was finishing up her master's degree at USD in 2016, and... Um, on her recital, there was a chamber music piece that needed to be on the program. And uh, we rounded up some friends and colleagues of ours to play a few movements of the Schubert Trout Quintet for violin, viola, cello, bass, and piano. And we had too much fun working on that. And kind of what got it in place was all these professional level musicians, they were too expensive to pay them what they were worth. So we decided to have, you know, uh, snack time, potluck time at the end of every rehearsal. And we just had too much fun making music and too much fun enjoying each other's company afterwards. And we thought, we got to keep this going. So here we are. Yeah. So we've been talking this hour about just uh, about community as yeah. a whole, coming around the table, 
coming um, around the family, you know, gathering, sure. a church gathering. And you guys come together, but then the audience comes together with you. So I can't play the piano, but I can be in the space. What's in it for, how do you interact with an audience in a chamber performance that sort of makes it a collective in some ways? The, the audience is going to change the performance a little. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's Tell a great question. That. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, I like to think that you had mentioned in your um, nice intro that it's a conductorless group. And so anybody who's able to join us for our Sunday performance, they'll notice that there's a lot of eye darting from person to person. And I had, uh, when visiting with someone else, I had coined the term cue sniffs, where sometimes if you need to <laughs> let someone know you're ready to do the next thing. <laughs> we both did it at the same time, yeah. so it was super loud in your ears. Sorry, Sorry for all the <laughs> listeners out there. It was maybe a little much. Yeah. Cue yeah. Yes. So they can see yeah. that communication happening, mm -hmm. and they're kind of involved as well. Like, oh, so-and-so's looking at so-and-so. Some, or someone, you know, someone's getting a big gesture ready. Something's ready to happen. You know, yeah. So it's kind of a shared event. You mentioned, you know, teaching at Patrick County for students, uh, mm. student musicians, chamber music is really a good thing for them to learn because they have to learn how to communicate on their own without stopping. Yes. And without language necessarily. <laughs> and what does that teach musicians then? To, and really the students, because most of these students at Patrick Henry are not going to grow up to be professional musicians. Some of them are. But what are they learning from the chamber experience that they can apply to, you know, medicine, education, factory work, you know, yeah. that kind of communication in a group? Yes. Um, communication wise and also ownership of your own contribution and your own preparation. We talk about that a lot that at our first rehearsal, it's not one of those things where we all just kind of open up the music for the first time and say, OK, well, here goes nothing. It's one of those things where folks will study, they will prepare, they will, you know, try to have some awareness of how they fit into the larger mix. And so it's kind of that your own piece of the pie and then kind of the synergy that comes from everybody being greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah. Tell yeah. me what's on this program this weekend. Yeah, this is a wonderful program. Um, we are featuring, uh, it's kind of a clarinet feature. Also, we're throwing some uh, wind instruments into the mix. So we've done mostly strings and piano up to this point. Now we're throwing some clarinets and horns into the mix. So we're playing the uh, Mozart clarinet quintet. It's kind of a classic. And then um, I was also thinking about this on the drive over that I couldn't have picked a better piece if I had like drawn it up myself by committee. There's, I said, man, wouldn't it be nice? Cause we have a couple of friends of ours who are, um, and I'll give them the proper shout out. So it's Angela Larson. She's our clarinetist and Kimberly Bogart. She's our horn player. And um, I said, man, it'd be great to have Angie and Kim play with us sometime. It wouldn't be nice if there was some piece that had strings and piano and a clarinet and a horn part. And sure enough, there's this one piece that's a perfect like counterpart to the Mozart. It's by a gentleman named um, Erno Dorknanyi, and uh, he wrote this in the 1930s. And it's a real it's a it's a sextet for yeah. piano, strings, clarinet, and horn that like, is I think the one configuration of its kind that'll be a really nice way to complement the Mozart. Quintet. And I don't know that composer, so you can go and learn something new. Yeah. About yeah. what this is. Who's yeah. it for? Is it open? Um, tickets, tell me a little bit about where its location is. Yeah. yeah, so again, you kind of mentioned um, we're trying to keep it accessible, so mm -hmm. it's going to be um, admission-free, but we'll definitely welcome some free will offerings to kind of help the continuation of the group. We're going to be at Westminster Presbyterian Church. That's at 26th and Bonson here in Sioux Falls, and program will be this Sunday the 17th at 4 in the afternoon. All right. It is the White Spruce Chamber Players. You can also find them online and learn more about all those 
um, players. Brett Cooper is the pianist. And thank you for joining us today and, and talking all about this. We really appreciate it. Look yeah. forward to it. Thank you, Lori. Do you have other stuff this fall? I mean, the, se- the summer season's over. Do you do more in the fall, winter, or... We do, yeah. yeah. We have to Usually be careful in the fall, get super busy, yeah, especially hey. since all of our um, folks are mu- music educators. I got to quick give a shout out. So Beth teaches orchestra in Huron, and Liz is professor at uh, Dakota Wesleyan and Mitchell, and Marjorie's teaching at Robert Frost, and Laura, of course, is at Patrick Henry. And then I'm the the lone holdout here who's not <laughs> a music educator, <laughs> but they get busy in the fall. But we'll be yeah. playing. Um, in the winter, we're going to play at Poplar's Music Gallery in January. Okay. And then we're going to yeah. actually go down to Sioux City in February. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much, Brett. Appreciate your time. Thank you. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you on Mondays in the Moment. A South Dakota mining company thinks there are significant gold deposits near the closed Homestake mine in the northern Black Hills. Lee Strubinger talks with Dakota Gold. Plus, it's not just gold people want. We'll learn about the search for critical minerals and explore efforts to add a tax on mineral lithium. That's all ahead of SDPB's special report called Black Hills in the Balance, and that report airs on Wednesday next week. In the Moment is produced by Ellen Kester and Ari Youngeman. Our engineer is Colton Nicholson. Jordan Henderson is our videographer. Kara Hetland, our executive producer. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.